Welcome to Joiners, the podcast where Tim and Danny meander. Do you already use meander? <laughs> I've not used meander yet. Meander down hospitality lane, unarmed and vulnerable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Danny, did your leg unlock? <laughs> yeah, that was wild last night. Um, so for the uh for the listeners out there we worked an event called the chicago cocktail social last night and my uh, bartending debut yeah it was tim's bartending debut uh he was on the unpopular drink station i the stations to the right and left of me had very long lines all night and i was sitting there Kind of just people watching. Yeah, I mean, you know, which was Posey, it was good people watching. You know, Posey referenced a Vesper in his interview, and I think that's where the seed was planted to develop a Vesper for the cocktail social. And so uh, two people picked up on it. They're like, this sounds a lot like a Vesper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. and one woman stood there for about ten minutes trying to come up with the name Vesper, and finally she was like, Vesper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was wild. It was kind of go 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 from the jump. Um, definitely. Uh, a little bit intense doing four hours on your feet i looked uh, over at danny at one point he was buckled over which i in just wincing in pain <laughs> it was like a sports injury or something yeah, what happened I, yeah i don't know i think it's just because i wasn't taking any you're, steps i was in a fixed position you're out of shape too much time away from the bar <laughs> i guess so yeah oh man not as young as i once was perhaps um but yeah this week we have a wonderful wonderful interview Really good interview. Yeah, we got Zoe Shore in here to talk with us about her journey uh, from growing up in Boston, going to culinary school, working, you know, in the three most populated metropolitan areas in the United States. Which three? We've got New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago. In that order. Yep. Um, her spot in Chicago now is Split Rail, and they're getting ready to open uh, the their lesbian bar, Dorothy, which uh, opened like right as the pandemic started to get intense yeah i think it's dorothy downstairs um and then there's yeah there's exciting stuff on the horizon from zoe and her team and uh yeah i mean it's just it was it's wild to think about all the things that zoe has done in her short time in the industry yeah a crazy amount of experience a very impressive resume yeah so without further ado here's zoe short staying in the loop staying in the loop staying in the loop staying in the loop yeah staying in the loop staying in the loop staying in the loop yeah so I assume you know what a joiner is. Danny had to explain it to me. Why don't you just explain it? So yeah. So a oh, joiner, like when we have a reservation and then, oh, got it. you know, okay. someone comes on to that reservation that was not necessarily planned. Like we have a joiner at table, whatever. Um, you know, that's kind of, that's how I've always like that's thought funny. of it. Let's so we've so got a two top every that. week and yeah, yeah. <laughs> a different joiner. That's cool. a joiner. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we're very happy that you're on the podcast with us so thank you for joining thank you for having me and um yeah i mean it's kind of wild you've kind of been in every major metropolitan city like you've been in the top three uh most populated places in the country uh you know from a culinary perspective it's just it, you've got like a quite quite a breadth of experience yeah absolutely i mean i've been in chicago for 11 years now which is hard to believe but yeah it's wild you know, I definitely, I like the major metropolitan areas and I like to kind of see what's out there. Um, I've definitely 
Los Angeles was like my most formative culinary experience. Yeah. Um, but Chicago has become home and it's got a great food scene here. Yeah. And it seems like, so growing up, you came to Chicago in the summers that... That's right. Actually, I'm wearing my Parker sweatshirt right now. My siblings went to, to oh, Parker here whoa. in Chicago. I grew up in Boston. Um, and yeah, my dad moved here for work when I was a kid. And so I'd go back and forth between Boston and Chicago. Ah, uh, okay. That makes sense. I was sense. a substitute teacher, art teacher at Parker. Get out oh, of here. Yeah. When? Before trading and before uniforms. <laughs> no. what, when, yeah. were you, when were you there? Um, I guess this would be like 2010, maybe. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. My, my younger sister, I'm trying to think when she graduated. She really graduated in like 2012 or 13, something like that. Mm. Um, I was teaching young kids. Got it. So, I mean, that's that's like it's like it's like K through high school there. Yes, JK through 12. So my little sister, she went there JK through 12 all the way through, um, which is you know it's I don't want to say it's a cult, but (laughs) yeah, we have a few friends that went to Parker. Yeah. Wait, so what was, no, I'm just curious what Tim's substitute teaching career. <laughs> oh, it was, it was only a couple of times. It was, uh, my mom was actually teaching and I just would help her. Oh, she was, she taught at Parker? Yeah, she did. Uh, I think she did like the after school program stuff, but then she would also fill in. And when she couldn't do it, I would. Huh. Wow, <clears throat> for like normal art classes. That's surprising. I was um, art, art boy as a, yeah, art as a boy. kid. So you were pretty familiar with Chicago and then, but somehow... You went to school in New York, culinary school there, and then afterward you moved to LA kind of immediately to open Kraft. Well, yeah. So, I mean, I was just a cook when I worked at Kraft. That was my first cooking job. But yeah. um, I moved. So I moved from Boston to New York, which is a pretty standard. It's just a, it's a short train ride. It's pretty easy. A lot of people do that. Yeah. And then I liked New York. I liked the energy. But as a young cook, you're not making a lot of money. And New York is just like, it's a tough town. And I know that that sounds stupid because everybody knows there's songs about it. There's movies about it. There's TV shows about it. But <laughs> it is. It's a tough town. And it's cold in the winter. And after a winter there, I was like, do I want to work this hard to live? Like, you know, I was apartment hunting. Yeah. And you're looking at apartments where, like, you're sharing a living room. Yeah. And yeah. maybe there's a curtain somewhere involved and maybe there isn't. <laughs> and I had kind of been looking at... I've always been, like, a dreamer. Like, I, I'll look at real estate on the other side of the world and be yeah. like, what if I lived here? Yeah. You know, and I've been looking on Craigslist, like, San Diego, LA. I've never been to anywhere out there. Yeah, I think Tim and I can identify with that. For sure. It's, like, my favorite. Looking at, like, real estate that doesn't belong to me and never will is like one of my favorite activities, for <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, we do that, yeah. And so I was looking at LA, San Diego, and just kind of dreaming about it. And then I had a really weird apartment rental visit, like a tour or whatever. And the guy at the end of it was like, so when do you want to move in? And I was like... I think I'm moving to California. <laughs> and then like, uh, I'm, out. I'm not moving. In. Basically, my older sister got transferred out there and it felt like a great opportunity to just like bring some of the kids back together. So I wound up going to L.A. because my sister was there as opposed to San Diego. But I'd never been to any of it. So I just drove there in my car and got to L.A. for the first time. I was like, here's where I live now. Wow. This is cool. That's wild. It was fun. Um, is your sister still in L.A.? She is actually in the Bay Area. So my, okay. my brother at the time was at, in Orange County at school. Okay. So he moved up to Hollywood. We were all living in L.A. Um, three out of four of us were living in L.A. And then my older sister now lives in the Bay Area. My brother's still in L.A. Wow. Yeah. So it's funny because, you know, like I'm from L.A. My dad's from Boston. So a lot of family in Boston. I love it. So we have a lot of like similar. I love L.A. Yeah. L.A. is great. I, you know, I will ask you this as well. But, you know, a lot of friends over there have been like, you ever do something in L.A.? And I'm like. Uh, the scene in you LA, <laughs> no, I yeah, yeah, yeah it just, but the scene seems so tough there. Like everything is so like fickle and it's, it's different. 
Yeah. And the neighborhood relationships are really different. But I think that there are, especially on the east side, those neighborhood relationships are getting built in a way that's probably different from when you grew up. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you have like the Alimento and Cozabona and all that stuff, which is like great on the east side. And I feel like the people actually like patronize those places pretty frequently. But growing up, the vibe was something was hot for a time and then it was totally gone. And then and something think, would be hot and then totally gone. I think that's true, but then there's places that have been there for 50 years. And yeah. I think I think tapping into a neighborhood and offering what the neighborhood wants. I mean, when we were out there in March, the best restaurant we went to, for sure, without a doubt for us, was Here's Looking at You. Yeah. Um, and then we also went to All Day Baby. And I thought that they were doing such cool stuff that both catered to their neighborhoods, but also brought people in from other neighborhoods. We went to some a lot of cool restaurants, honestly. Um, but... You know, I think if you can hit your neighborhood and get a little bit of that destination traffic and really do it well, which, you know, you all do it really well. I mean, this is like one of my favorite bars in the city for sure. Well, thank you. Um, and not everybody does. Not everybody like puts their money where their mouth is and makes sure that the product and the people are, are where they're supposed to be time and time. and You know what I mean? That's, yeah. that's really important. But like, did you feel like, obviously you ended up here, like really making a name for yourself here. Did you ever consider like doing this in LA or in another city? Like how did it all develop to be in Chicago? Like how did you know that you wanted to do split rail here? Well, so for me, I, I definitely believe in like following the path the universe lays out for you. Like, like big time. Like I really do when something's right in front of me, I'll go for it. Like I just about every time. And so I was really, I was ready for a change. And the thing about LA when I lived there was my feeling was there weren't a lot of small neighborhood restaurants, which I really think has been coming up now. And I have always wanted to like have an, a great neighborhood restaurant where I live nearby and was part of the community that I was serving. And I wasn't doing that when I was working in big, you know, fine dining restaurants. Um, and I also wasn't doing it at the the bar I was working at when I was, when I was there, you know, right before I left. And I just basically decided to move here. Like I, I, Actually, funnily enough, you know, when you want to talk about the universe pointing a pathway. So my best friend owns a restaurant down in Nashville, but she used to work for MK here in Chicago. So she had introduced me to MK at her wedding. And I came, I flew out here to interview to open Ada Street, which was a restaurant I worked at before Split Rail. Yeah. And I did the interview. I thought it went well. It was a little hard to tell. And I just never heard from him again. And, you know, at the same time, where I really wanted to work was Girl on the Goat. So I had reached out to them with my resume and uh, was asking Nostage to apply for a sous chef position. And I never heard back from them. And then I just decided to quit my job and move out here anyway. And the <laughs> day before I was leaving, Michael Cornick called me on the phone and he said, you know, <clears throat> turns out I think I have a job for you. And I was like, great, I'll be there tomorrow. You know? <laughs> and I was so, like to be the opening exec chef. And then I was the opening exec chef at industry, although <laughs> for a little while I wasn't really sure what my role was. Um, but, you know, like, I really respect... I love Boca and, and I like the goat restaurants a lot. I, I really re have always respected Stephanie Izard. I'm a huge Top Chef fan. So I've like, you know, been watching her on TV for a million years. But like, that's really where I wanted to work more than anything. And I'm so glad the direction it took just because Ada Street was such an incredible experience. And like, sometimes it just like the world opens up a path and you got to take it. I mean, yeah, I have so many questions. Like, you know, you spent some time working at, you know, at a Thomas Keller outpost. You worked for MK, like... What was it like working for those types of people? How do they compare? How are they different? I mean, I love, what I love about fine dining in general is like the discipline and the dedication. 
What I don't love is like arbitrary rules that kind of like keep people in one place. Yeah. And, you know, so I loved working for, for the DMK group for Michael and David so much. Um, I loved working at Ada Street, you know, because it, I was able to marry kind of my love for the discipline, the dedication, the, the technique, the love of the craft and food and hospitality with a much more casual approach and environment. Um, and I mean, I loved every restaurant I worked at really and truly. I've got great stories and great things to say about all of them. But I think that in general, you know, as we're seeing the way that fine dining restaurants have run for, for decades and, and beyond doesn't really work well for everyone. Yeah. Um, and so it was really a blessing to be able to get out of that environment, but to have learned so much from it. Yeah, for sure. And then like you also mentioned, like top chef and everything, obviously you yourself have had, uh, some, <laughs> some pretty solid, uh, mm-hmm. TV exposure, visibility experience. What was that process like? You know, it's true. And I actually, I, for a long time, auditioned for, to- or whatever you call it, applied for Top Chef every year. Yeah. Um, and actually, Top Chef is why I started cooking. Um, what got wow. me on it. Started oh. this whole pathway. So I, I credit them. We watch every episode. I'm totally obsessed. I've seen every season other than the last what, one multiple times. What's the best season? So, you know, I loved season four. That's the season Stephanie Eisard won. You know, it's Chicago. It was such a cool season. I loved the gamesmanship of the Vegas season. Yeah. Um, I loved Texas is a great season. You're and making Sarah me want to get back into it. Get back into it. Sarah Grunenberg, who I'm friendly with here in the city, who I like so much, I like her restaurant so much, was so good. And I rewatched it with my partner maybe two years ago. And we watched it and we were like, she won. Like, she mm-hmm. won. <laughs> yeah. You know, because sometimes you're like, yeah. like, and I think that happens a lot. Like, I was just unchopped, as you're yeah. saying. And a lot of people were like, you were robbed when I didn't win the, the final in the tournament. Um, so I won my first episode, so I'm technically a chop champion, but didn't win, not a grand champion. And when it really came down to it, people were like, you won. You know, that was, they were full of it. They yeah. were just talking about plates. And I was like, I did not win. I was there. I, I made my plate of food. I saw her plate of food. I was there for the judgment. They chose what they put into the TV show, but I did not win. Yeah. I, I lost that one fair and square. And I feel like watching that that season of Top Chef again, like I feel like Sarah won. But <laughs> What's got it like behind the scenes? You know, it's like anything else in TV. I mean, Danny, you're from L.A. I mean, it's a lot of hurry up and wait. Yeah. Um, which different people, you know, react to in different ways. One of the things that was kind of remarkable on Chop that has never happened before, I've done, I guess that was probably my fourth TV show, I think. Third or fourth. Fourth. Wow. Um, like fourth competition show. Hmm. They take your phones. And I should have seen yeah. that coming. Like we should have seen it coming. But it was six in the morning. We like a whatever, real early call time. And at six in the morning, they come around and they take your phones. And in our case, they put them in a lunchbox for some reason. <laughs> and one of the competitors was like, well, you can't take my phone. And I was like, you got you to gotta give this fight up right now. <laughs> yeah, oh like, my. you can win this show or you can worry about your phone, but you cannot do both. What and was I the logic? I watched this person, like, melt it. I mean, to be fair, she they had children. And oh, they were concerned right. about, you know, like, being able accessible. But there's also, I mean, for basically all of existence up until 20 years ago, you weren't accessible. Yeah. It would have been better if she was like leading in an auction on eBay for something. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. That would have been better. I'm about to seal it. (laughs) (laughs) I think we all just have this really unhealthy attachment to our phones. But the biggest thing is when you're in these competition settings, it's like, okay, so you get knocked for a loop. Can you recover? Can you just say, okay, fine, that happened, I'm moving on. And when you can't, you can't win. 
you know, and that's the reality. And like, you see it time and again, where somebody's just like, whoa, I didn't think this was going to be like this. If you can't, you're going to be flexible. Yeah. Yeah. And then do you feel like each time you do it, you get better? Like there's more, you know, kind of. Yeah, I mean, you get more comfortable, for sure. The first time I did it, I was really nervous. I can't imagine. I'd be uh, a wreck. There's a lot of really funny little things. Like, okay, they mic you up at the beginning of the day. You go to the bathroom, your mic's still on. You're trusting it's not hot. You're trusting that nobody's listening <laughs> yeah. to you. But you're in the bathroom, your mic is on. Like, that stuff is hard to get used to for the first time. Yeah. Um, But also, like, what's so funny about it, at least for me, is, like, the relationships that get formed. Where, like, you bond with your producers. You bond with your you know, the competitors. And at the end of the day, you're like, has this been a day or a year? Like, you just feel like you've been an island with these people because you go into a building and then, like, you can't go anywhere by yourself. Somebody's taking you to the bathroom. Someone's taking you to get food. Someone's, you know, like, people are bringing you things. Do they take you out to, like, the wherever you're shooting? Like, are they taking you out to places to eat or it's just all craft services? Oh, it's all craft services. Like, at this last one, I had to beg to let us outside because it was so cold inside. So Oof, I yeah. brought a sweatshirt today <laughs> yeah. because I'm like, I, I don't like air conditioning. I run really cold. Yeah. And I was like, you need to let us go outside into the sun for, like, a minute. I was so cold. But, um, you know, it was so funny. We were all joking around during um, the chop filming about, like, getting back to our respective lives and like nobody's gonna take you to the bathroom and like you know like somebody be like I have to go to the bathroom and a producer would like get on their mic and then there'd be like a lot of back and forth and it'd be like all right chef's passing through chef's walking chef's walking and we'd all be joking around about like how we're gonna go back to our real life and who's gonna be like chef's walking while we were going about our business wow yeah is it tough how do you balance being away from the restaurant when you're filming I mean, I think the reality is you know my team our team right now is incredible and I'm actually trying to pull away from like not always being there during service and our team is really great but also sometimes you just have to like go away and trust it's gonna be okay yeah let go go because like it's good for the restaurant right i like i didn't win the forty thousand dollars at the end of the chop thing i didn't make any money you know but it's good for the restaurant to go out there and 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 be on it and frankly it's a lot of fun so yeah do you see a correlation between like when you're on a show and how like in business at the restaurant sometimes i mean what's funny about chopped um is so I we we did chopped it aired and my partner's mother said why didn't you say the name of the restaurant and I was like oh dang they edited out every single one of us saying the name of our restaurant oh. they don't say they don't let you say but the they name. look so, you up and then so then see, people yeah. so the people who did come in were like well I saw you on chopped and I don't know why you didn't say the name of the restaurant but I had to pause it and then I rewound it and then I googled it and then I found you whoa and like I luckily at least have a unique name unique <laughs> spelling I don't think anybody else has the same name yeah. You know, but if you're like Bill Sullivan from Detroit or something, like they might not find you at all, you know? And, uh, John Smith. and so it is funny that they don't really let you wrap your restaurant really hard. Mm. Um, I wonder if that, yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if it's like due to equity, like that one contestant might be saying their place more and mm. another contestant would be upset that their place wasn't mentioned. It can also times. attract competitors for the wrong reasons, maybe. Or there could be some sort of nepotism in the casting or something. I, yeah. I mean, there's got to be some reason. And I mean, at the end of the day, they're not there to advertise other people's restaurants. Yeah, and that might the be no the simplest reason, thing. right? Yeah, like exactly. they're there to, to create TV and create good content. And I love the show Chopped. I love watching it. I couldn't watch for about six months after I got back from filming. I had to take a break. I got so stressed out the second like any competition was on TV. <laughs> and it's, you... it's stressful, you know? Oh, yeah. How do you compare like the level of stress competing on a Chopped versus like a super busy night of service where you're in the weeds? I prefer Chopped. 
Uh, I think the great thing about Chopped is like you can't. No, there's not gonna have to worry if a dishwasher doesn't show up or something like that. And, and you know, like yeah. it sounds like I'm joking, but I'm not. No, like yeah, being able sure. to be totally removed from that is incredible. Yeah, I mean, we deal with that every day almost. Um, the best thing is like when they actually say go and you're just in it, you know. And it passes so fast, but like you, you just like you're doing what you like to do best. Yeah. Theory, right. Party Can is a large format craft cocktail that comes in a variety of tasty flavors. There's spicy margarita, cosmopolitan, and gold rush old fashioned. If you're looking for a party in a can, look no further. Party Can. Have you ever met people through the shows that you've worked with, you know, outside of? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So I've definitely built some relationships in, you know, people I'm still like following on Instagram or talk to from time to time. Actually, Kalina um, Bliss, who is in Seattle, who beat me in the uh, tournament that I was on, she was really an incredible competitor and like somebody I really enjoyed getting to know. She and I really bonded um, during that short time. We were just together for one day. And I'll tell you this story. So one of the people I work with, maybe one of the best cooks I've ever worked with, like really, truly one of the most incredible people I've talented, smart dedicated, humble. He's just, he's been with us for about a year. He, I sat down to be like, Hey, do you want to take a leadership position? He's like, Hey, I want to move away. And I was like, cool. (laughs) I support you. Yeah. You should do it. And, And I was like, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? How can we help? And he was like, to be honest, I kind of want to go work for that woman who beat you on job. Oh my <laughs> God. And I was like, bold. Awesome. So you, actually, yeah, you liked her tomorrow lot, is his so, last yeah. day. He's moving to Seattle and he's going to work for Kalina. At Did the, you make that connection? Or I connected them. Yeah. Okay. Yep, right. I so he knew you guys were happily. close. And yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. It I had nothing like but, but back, great things. Totally. To, no, no, no. I had nothing but great <laughs> things to say about her when I got back. I, I mean, meeting her and, and becoming friendly with her was like one of the best things about the show. And she's unbelievably talented. I mean, she beat me Absolutely. There was no doubt. Um, the fact that I came close felt pretty good. But yeah. yeah, but I mean, like, that's what's kind of cool about the shows and about this community in general. And I think, not to go off on a total tangent, but I think that's what's really missing from, like, contemporary restaurant scene. Like, 30 years ago, it was not as competitive in terms of, like, hoarding your cooks. Like, they were, like, I don't know, Pokemon that yeah. you're trying to collect or whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah. it was about letting people learn and giving them an opportunity to learn and, like, showing one person something and then mean like it feels like you know i think i think i heard tom calicchio talking about this on another podcast uh on the podcast evolutionaries maybe but i could be misremembering where he's talking about like you know you do your time with me and then you're ready to learn something else and then i call up eric repair and i'm like hey the best cook wants to come work for you like that's how it felt to call kalina and say alex wants yeah. to come work for you it's like somebody who's incredibly talented who's done not all they can do with us but felt feels like he's ready to move on like all i want is for him to have something incredible happened. And that's how I feel about our entire team. It's like, I want everyone to work with us as long as they're learning and growing and feeling good. And then I want them to feel like they have support to move on to the next thing. Yeah. And I think that's kind of missing in our industry right now. I think that's, that's fair. Um, it, it also seems that the pool is smaller. Well, so it's probably harder to like the, let people go. The pool's and... probably not smaller as much as, uh, how many restaurants there are as well. Yeah, fair enough. And how many restaurants that are worth working at. And I put air quotes on that, but you know what I mean? Like <laughs> define worth working at. It used to be, you had the big, big restaurants and just like the small, no name restaurants. And now, yeah. you know, over the last 20 years, that's really evolved. And I think that's the biggest transition. Yeah. Like how do you, how do you retain people? Like what's. What's your well, technique? Well, I mean, listen, first of all, we're, we're not perfect at it. Um, we have, you know, 
we're a restaurant, a restaurant group technically, because we have a bar too, where I would say we're not for everyone and the people we're for really like to stick around and I really appreciate that. But like some people we have had, we have had people who have been with us for years who I value so much and we've also had a ton of turnover, you know? And so like, I'd say it's like 60, 40 where we've got people who stick. So some of the things we do, we offer bonuses, we offer paid vacation time, we offer health benefits. Um, we also don't have the traditional tipping method that a lot of places have. And again, for front of house people, some people don't like that and some people do, yeah. you know? How, what are some funny stories of someone not meshing with the crew? Oh, man. <laughs> uh, with with naming names, please. Of course, yeah. 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 First and last, <laughs> well, yeah, last social, social, social for yeah. sure. Yeah. Uh, I wish I'd had that prompt ahead of time because I feel like there's some really, there's got to be some really funny ones. I mean, you know, I think what's always kind of remarkable is when you're just really wrong about somebody in either direction, right? Yeah, like, for sure. Whether it's somebody you kind of didn't think was going to work out who winds up working there for two or three years or... You know, when you put all your eggs in someone's basket and you're like, this person's going to be awesome. And then they come in and you're like, what happened? <laughs> yeah. Was that interview the best day of your life? <laughs> and it's just all downhill from Yeah, there. interviews are super tough, especially from positions where, like, execution matters so much. It's like, in an interview, you're not really seeing what someone's capable of. Yeah, I in mean, either there's direction, a lot of guesswork, like for sure. I mean, I think what's funny, you know, you're talking about L.A. and some of the challenges there. But one of the things my brother said to me when we were out there earlier this year that really kind of stuck with me was like, he was talking about how hard it is to get a bartending or serving job hmm. because in LA, there's a lot of a gig work while people are, are acting, trying yeah, to act, trying fair. to do, you know, work in the movies, work in TV. And I was like, what is that like? Do you think <laughs> you know, he's not in restaurants anymore? But like, I was just kind of like, what would it be like to have, have a lot of people show oh, up yeah. for an interview yeah. instead of stand you up and oh, then like yeah, have kidding. people wanting to work there like because there's nowhere to work you know yeah. and like I just can't imagine what that's like and and also I've I have some friends in in the television and film industry who like recently I was uh, playing poker with my friend who was like does uh, movies and I was like well are you all having the same like labor problems that we're having and he's like no people <laughs> yeah, always want to work, work in TV yeah. are you kidding <laughs> yeah. That's like, got to be tough being in restaurants in L.A. and you're going up against beautiful actors in your interviews who audition for a living. <laughs> yeah, like, how, are you, how do you beat them in an, in an well, interview? Well, I think one thing that's funny. So that's real funny. early days when we were opening the restaurant, my like HR person told me to like be cautious how much stock I put in an interview because somebody who interviews really well might just interview often. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and somebody who interviews poorly might have been working in the same place for six or seven years and they're nervous. And so, like, you know, you've got to kind of take it with, with a grain of salt. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, you briefly mentioned your brother, which made me think about your grandfather and, and your family and, the you know, the links to the industry. So, yeah, do you want to maybe tell us a little bit about how you grew up around the restaurant world? Sure. So, actually, by the time I was alive, my grandfather no longer had a restaurant. But he had a restaurant when my dad was a teenager and into his college years. And so my dad grew up cooking in the restaurant, learned to cook in the restaurant, worked in the restaurant, um, worked for free or for beer pretty much. Like, didn't, <laughs> didn't get paid, I don't think, ever. Um, and my grandfather was very old school. He, he passed away of COVID, unfortunately. But oh, he's just, like, old school... Um, you know, came over after the war to New York and really <clears throat> didn't leave much, um, didn't leave the city often. Um, and he just had a lot of opinions about everything. And he was one of these guys who worked in like, he owned, he owned his own restaurant for a brief period of time, but he wasn't a great money manager. <clears throat> he also like worked in every like nightclub and, 
you know, worked as a bouncer, worked as a maitre d', kind of like, you know, the stories my grandfather that are, like, famous is, like, he, he, uh, I think she was probably his second wife, but I actually don't know how many wives he had. He met one of his wives, <laughs> yeah. uh, my aunt's mother, um, like on an airplane, and then just left with her from the from the airport. Um, one of my favorite stories about him is he moved out to Palm Springs with a woman for a short period of time and got tired of her. And they were supposed to take a day trip to Los Angeles. And at the end of the day, when they went to drive back, he said, yeah, I'm not going with you. And she's oh, like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, I'm going to stay here. And she's like, well, what about all your stuff? He said, it's in the trunk of your car. And he just left. That's like, this is the kind of stuff about my grandfather. So my dad grew up with this guy as his dad and, and learned how to cook and and learned to take cooking really seriously. But what think, kind of cooking was your grandfather doing or teaching your dad? So he had he had a restaurant out on Long Island. So I think it was just like steaks, chops, fish, simple stuff. Um, you know, it was the, the 70s, I guess. Um, going, yeah, like I guess mid-70s. And so just like, like out on Long Island, what you'd want to eat out over the water kind of thing. So, yeah. so simple food. Um, and my dad actually recently went back to, to where the restaurant was. There's a restaurant there now. Oh, whoa. It's, it's called like Portobello or something, but my grandfather's restaurant was called the Boathouse. So cool. my company is actually called Boathouse Restaurants. Oh, that's awesome. Cool. Is it map. the same structure out there? I, I mean, I, I don't know exactly. He said, my dad said the chef came by with, they were closed, but the chef came by and let them in and showed them around. So I cool. think it is the same restaurant. Wow. I think it is. He should have just started digging in an arbitrary spot and said like, there's a bunch of doubloons <laughs> buried under here. <laughs> <laughs> just like wrecked his floor i'm glad you're like, here i guess that was mistaken <laughs> sir sorry <laughs> see you later <laughs> um but yeah i mean so you've kind of been around it a long time so my dad so my dad's not in the industry but he loves to cook and he's a great cook and he got me really interested in cooking at a young age um and I was always just happy to be in a room doing whatever my dad was doing, being around him. Yeah. Um, but he actually, when we first opened the restaurant, he came in and worked a few times. And he did it because we were so short-staffed <laughs> and stretched so thin that I called him. And he, like, he was supposed to come to dinner one night. And I was like, can you come work instead? What did he do? He worked garmage a wow, fair Wow, so he could do stuff. Um, and I've got to tell you, when the first time he did wow. it, I really expect him to just be like hands. You know, like I was like, he's not going to do a great job, but he'll be there. Because like, he's, he's a great cook, but like, how wow. do you just like adjust to like being in a restaurant? He was so good and people kept coming by and being like chef your dad's station's so clean chef your, sal- your dad's salads are so beautiful he was so good at it um wow. he is still so good at it he really retains it and i like i've always known he was a great home cook but those skills don't always translate and i just but didn't really know what maybe to you got them from somewhere they're just deep so deep inside he and i've cooked a bunch together we do we've done an annual hanukkah dinner he used to do it always with me the last couple of years i've been like don't take it off you work too much mm-hmm. anyway in your real job um but so we've we've done a lot of projects like that together and it's always really fun he's very talented is it ever like competitive it it hasn't been you know it's funny i think you, you when you watch these shows like top chef there's there's always like some episode where the family comes in like a partner you know a husband a wife a mother a father whatever and they do some sort of like terribly stressful cooking activity where the the loved one who's not a cook is expected to like keep up and i always like wonder like if my dad came in i feel like he would we would be really good at it together i don't know if they'd let him because he might have too much cooking experience but yeah wow i mean it's it's funny your your story it's like my dad's dad had places in boston he was in the, on the restaurant side and my dad was never in the biz really? uh but is pretty talented uh cook and it's funny the the apocryphal story that my dad tells is that 
you know, among the last pieces of advice that my grandfather gave to him were to not get into the restaurant business. <laughs> it's like skips a generation. Yeah. Goes to me, skipped, went to you. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, I mean, funny. because, you know, we didn't grow up with like the absolute stress of it, but then like my father definitely romanticized it. Like, I mean, in a good, like, just like had a lot of good things to say about it, love to cook and I love to cook. And I think, you know, my parents have always been great about like supporting us and whatever dreams we had, you know, that was never like what's practical about this. And in fact, that was always the last question that was asked. And so we got the chance, all of us, all four of us to, you know, do whatever we wanted to, to go after and always be supported, which was very cool. Yeah, absolutely. Was, was culinary school always the plan? No, not at all. I mean, honestly, so I was, I started working at Starbucks the day after I graduated from high school and I worked there for over five years. Um, and I had no plan. I just like, I worked at Starbucks. I really liked my job. I was good at it. Yeah. Um, like I keeping a million orders in your head. Yeah. Like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This was before the stickers before, before anyone wrote on the cups and I worked <laughs> my, one of my favorite jobs. I worked at the, the biggest store in new England on Boylston street in Boston. And I was the opener, always there at five in the morning. Every for five years, I, I was at work at five wow. in the morning, and I loved it. I'm a morning person, and I loved, you know, getting done with my day early. I loved being the person that people were excited to see in the morning, that brightened up people's day. I, I just enjoyed the work. I enjoyed. I mean, before I was a cook, like I enjoyed making the drinks, keeping them in my head. You know, I, I've always been good at that kind of work. Um, but yeah, I just really had no vision for what I wanted to do, and they were starting to kind of like groom me to be a manager, I guess. Like they, I'd been a supervisor for five years and they were kind of like, don't you want more? And I was like, I don't, do I want to work <laughs> at Starbucks forever? Like, you know, I was 22 years old, yeah. 23 years old. And I was like, I don't, I don't think I, I don't think I do. And the story I always tell, but it's really true. So I had a roommate who I was very good friends with. I'm still good friends with her. She still lives in Boston. We used to cook together all the time. That was a huge activity for, for us together. And I came home one night, I think from like the nightclub we used to go out to or whatever. And she was like, dude, you missed the best show I've ever seen. We have to watch together next week. And it was the first episode of Top Chef and I never missed another episode. Wow. So that season we watched Top Chef together religiously. It was also a season that I think Hell's Kitchen started, but I wasn't like, I didn't like that very much. But Top Chef, I was like glued to the screen and if you remember the first season you know like tiffany Faison was in there and she was like just this badass woman um leanne wong was in there like there were these women competing and i don't even know if at the time tiffany is a boston person but i don't remember making that connection so much at the time but um and tiffany actually was one of the judges when i was on chopped which was a, a cool full circle to be able to say hey you're Whoa. like basically the reason i started cooking how did um, she respond when you said that very nicely very very gracious yeah. you know the producers were like let us get that on tape <laughs> well i wanted to like <laughs> make sure not to like i had to wait until after the judging was over because i didn't want it to be like like i was kissing Bye, my ass or yeah. something you know what i mean but like truly like she was my pick for season one i thought she was gonna win and I was so floored by the show. And by the end of that season, I decided I wanted to go to school. And, you know, I'm, I'm very, like, fortunate, very blessed. And I basically had decided, like, I was going to see how to, like, take out loans. I was going to go to school. I was going to do the whole thing. And I, I went to my dad. And my dad said, basically, we, we've been waiting for this. We've got some money. Your grandparents left, had some money for you for this, basically. Wow. And so it was a very short program. It's not like I was four years full ride or anything like that. But I had, like, basically like a four-month program in New York City where I got to not work and just go to school and live in the city, which was very cool for a young person, you know. Um, and actually, do you know the documentary on Netflix, Bad Vegan? Do you know what I'm talking about? I, yeah, I watched that a couple episodes. That was where I did my internship, was at Pure Food and Wine in, oh, in Union Square in New York. Um, so that's where that's where I was working, was where 
where that wild were you privy to the no, dysfunction it was before the scandal started oh. everything was pretty regular when i worked there it wasn't so crazy <laughs> wow and where's your accent coming from boston where's my accent uh i was we weren't really allowed to have the accent so you didn't have to like work it out also no. you had chicago to kind of erase it in the summer yeah it balances out i think when i'm drinking slash when i'm around my friends from boston it comes out much more but I, I think I just don't really have an accent. But then sometimes people make fun of how I say something. I'm like, wait, do I have an accent? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Yeah, I haven't heard it. Yeah, I don't But know. I haven't asked you to say like Bia or Ka <laughs> or Pak. You Buy said Parker drinks, pretty well. You know what I mean? And, and and bring back some Boston friends. Yeah, there you go. After the party can. <laughs> yeah. See, I can say party can. I yeah, can exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You're saying it pretty well. <laughs> This episode of Joiners is brought to you by Stock Manufacturing, makers of fine hospitality workwear. You obsess over the details in your space, so why stop at your staff's uniforms? Stock has something for every aesthetic. From fine dining to a corner cafe, they've got you covered. Choose from in-stock ready-to-wear options or design the perfect custom uniform for your team. For more information, visit stockmfgco.com. Yeah, I mean, so what's next? Like, you said you're kind of like taking trying to like learn to be away a little bit more give a little bit more control up yeah um well so the restaurant split row we just celebrated five years of being open and congratulations thank you so much so a we, couple of those years are pretty tough yeah to make cu- it through. All, i mean i'll be honest all five years were really tough <laughs> i'm not gonna lie about it you know oops sorry about that no, it's so all good, yeah. we opened in 2017 in june and i think we'd been open for one week when i was like what's next so we started negotiating for this basement space that was this old bar that had been down there but abandoned for a long time. And it took us three years to negotiate and build it. And we opened, so proudly we opened Dorothy. We were so excited about Dorothy. We opened Dorothy uh, Valentine's Day 2020. So oh, March 15th. Oh, man. She had 31 good days oh, and then shut God. down again. And basically it's been closed ever since. Like We, we had a little foray trying to reopen and then Omicron hit. Yeah. Kind of put a, a damper on that. So we're getting ready to reopen Dorothy now. Okay, and cool. Dorothy has always sort of like skirted the idea of being a queer bar. It's it's a very queer friendly space. And we've sort of like said it without saying it. And now we're reopening Dorothy this summer officially a queer bar. Yeah, cool. And this is actually cool. the first time I'm saying that publicly. But, you know, and, and really like, you know, even the name Dorothy comes from the reference of a friend of Dorothy, you know, being mm-hmm. sort of a covert way to let someone know that you're in the family, so to speak. And yeah. so it really is, it's, it works sort of billing it as like a lesbian bar for every friend of Dorothy. And I think as somebody who grew up in Boston, where as a lesbian, there was one night a week and we you couldn't get there on the train, you couldn't get there on the bus, you had to take a taxi, you had to call a taxi and take a $20 taxi to Somerville to the one place where you could go to feel at home um, and then, you know, I came to Chicago where we had like teas and we had, you know, there are a, a few lesbian bars left in the country, but they're, they're few. Yeah. Um, and for the most part, they're very concentrated in certain neighborhoods. And so, you know, for us to open a lesbian bar outside of a gay neighborhood, that's really, it's for everyone, it's for our neighbors. And I think we'll have plenty of people in there of all walks of life, but that's really meant for people to feel comfortable at home is, is really important to me. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really cool. I did not know, did not know any of that. So I'm glad to be learning it. Yeah. This is the first time I'm talking about it publicly, but we're, we're, we're working through, you know, figuring out how to make it be what we want it to be and also open to everyone. Cause we really do want it to be open to everyone. That's cool. 
I first heard Friend of Dorothy in the movie Clueless. Oh, me too. <laughs> so we have that in common. Yeah. Um, yeah, well. Did you ever stop to think, why does Murray know all of those phrases to mean gay man? Yeah. What he throws out, like uh, six, cake boy. Cake, yeah. Uh, uh, Barbara Streisand Barbara loving. <laughs> disco dancing. Disco dancing. Cake eating friend of Dorothy. Yeah. He's gay. Right? It's like, where? You are a 16-year-old boy from Beverly Hills. Where did you learn all of these phrases? But I'm glad he did, because then I did. Yeah. <laughs> I was wondering, so you mentioned, I, I was just reading your bio, and you had a mentor that you met at uh, at Beso. What what was that like? And how, I mean, it seems like you've worked under a lot of big names. How did you pick a mentor? Were you picked? And what's that relationship been like? And how is it now? I think anyone who has a mentor is picked by them. Yeah. I actually was lucky enough to have two very different mentors. I, I would say three mentors at Beso. Beso is, without a doubt, the most formative time that I spent in the restaurant industry. I look back at it with the most, like the utmost fondness. Um, it was an incredible experience. I was living alone for the first time in my life in Hollywood, a couple blocks from the restaurant. I was single on purpose, like not dating, not like I had given everything I had to this job and I loved it. I made all of my friends at work. My brother worked with me at Beso and I was just obsessed. And I think like, you know, I was mentioning, like, I think it is really hard to get people to like want to train and teach and, and take interest in. And I was just really lucky that I had like a lot of people take interest in me at Beso. Um, and, you know, I've had experiences at different restaurants when I was younger where I'd be like, all right, well, all my prep is done. I want to learn this station. And I was like heartily discouraged to do anything but my own work. And I was always like, well, how am I going to learn? And they'd basically be like, get back in your station. And so I had this young guy, Daniel, who was like basically like just a cook right above me all the time. So he was like the cook next to me. And then we both kind of kept bumping up the line. And then he became sous chef. And then I became sous chef. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. And Daniel taught me more than any other person. And he did most of it like at a whisper because he was afraid of getting in trouble. So he would just kind of talk out of the corner of his mouth and be like, this is what this is. This is how I'm doing this. <laughs> and I remember, so I started out like prep, garmage, fry station. Um, the first, so we did friends and family. The first night we did 60 covers. I was like, cake, this is so easy. I got this covered. The second night we did 100 covers and I cut myself and I cried and I wanted to quit. And I said I couldn't do it. And Daniel pulled me outside and gave me like the pep talk of a lifetime. <laughs> and, you know, a year and a half later, I was still working there and I was a sous chef. You know what I mean? It's like this guy was so awesome for me and such a great mentor for me. And I remember this so distinctly that and then the other mentors were the executive chef there and the sous chef there, both of whom were so important to me and taught me so much. But Daniel really like took such a personal interest in me. And I tell this story all the time, but I'm still kind of amazed at my own like uh, courage in doing this. So I was walking through the dining room for some reason and I overheard, it was like, I don't even know who's at the table, the executive chef, like the director of casual culinary operations for the Todd English group or something like the GM, all these people at this table in the middle of the day. And I heard him saying, one of them saying, well, if we're going to make Daniel Jr. sous chef, we need to figure out who's going to work the, the saute station. And I walked right up to that table and I said, I can do it. Wow. And the guy <laughs> said to me, you know the dishes? And I said, I know the dishes. And he said, can you do it tonight? It was Friday. I said, I can do it tonight. And I got that station. And that's like how I, but I had spent the last however many months listening to Daniel, watching Daniel, like refusing to take my eyes off of what he was doing. And I think, you know, you can't expect everybody to have that level of ambition and that level of like clarity around what they want to be doing next. But like 
I was so clear. I was like, that is the job I want. I don't want to be dunking things in the deep fryer. I've been in a French fries for a lifetime. I want to cook food. Um, and that was really the big stepping stone for me. And then when Daniel moved on, they made me the junior sous chef. Um, and then when our sous chef moved on, I kind of got bumped up that line. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like all of that happened because he took the time to teach me stuff or, or never would have. Wow. Know? That's cool. So do you have, are you mentoring anybody now? Or have you over? I'd like to think so. Years? I mean, it's hard. People that don't leave for the... Seattle. <laughs> yeah, I hope Alex. No, she mentored this. him right right out I'm to met, Seattle. Yeah, right, seriously. She's like, here's seriously. your ticket. I think I try for sure. I mean, I think it's hard because I cover so many different. I wear so many different hats, so to so to speak, in in the industry. And I think we all know, like, when you're owners of your own business, like. Yesterday felt like a day where all I do is pay bills and deal with bureaucracy because we were going through like task force inspections for Dorothy's PPA license, right? And so meeting with the city, cutting checks, paying invoices, like so much of my job is that, you know? Um, And then people have a million questions and and I try to find that line of like, I want to be helpful. And also if there's anyone else you can ask this to, don't please walk up to me on my computer and ask me. (laughs) I like to think it's because I'm approachable, but I don't actually think I am that approachable. But, you know... Training and teaching is really important to me. And I think I try to find out, especially when people have been with us for a while, like what do they want to learn next and try to provide those opportunities. But it's hard and it's it's easy to say, okay, well, I'm going to talk to this person. I'm going to say, what do you want to learn next? And then, then a week later, I have to remember that I kind of made a commitment to teach someone something. Mm-hmm. And then I have to follow up and then I have to make sure they're still practicing, yeah. you know, and, and it's hard and it's definitely easier with people who are more motivated themselves, but it's really important. I think for this, for the future of our industry, it's really important. Yeah, absolutely. So at split rail, is there, do you cross train people? Are you open to like making sure people are learning things that they're interested in because of your experience and absolutely. Kind of so that... yeah, we don't actually assign stations. Mm-hmm. People have kind of gravitated their own stations, but it's not like how I came up. Nobody's glued to one station. And we, I heartily encourage people to like go over and learn what other people are doing for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I try to find out what people want to work on and I'll bring product in. Like, oh, you don't know how to break down a fish. Well, let's bring down this in this fish and we'll break it down together. Or like, oh, you don't know how to break down chicken. We break down cases of chicken every week. You're going to be on chicken duty for the next few weeks. Um, and I think, you know, that is important because if people want to eat out, and they don't want to pay an absolute fortune and we don't want to make people work for free and we don't, you know, like yeah. all these things that have sort of worked in our industry aren't working anymore. You know, the 80 hours I worked off the clock historically <laughs> is not going to work for most people these days. Yeah. And so how do you learn? And I think that like oftentimes I invest in people because I really believe in those people and I really care about those people. But I'm also, I think, investing in the future of our industry. Because if nobody takes the time to teach, I mean, you own a bar, you own bars and restaurants. Like, if it's hard to become a bartender and it's hard to find bartenders, why are we not training more bartenders? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? I think the hard, yeah, it's, you're totally right. I mean, the hard part historically was that people would want to come in off the clock and learn things and be that's with how me. I and yeah. yeah, and that's how I learned as well. And, th- <laughs> Yeah, like I think the interest is still kind of there, but like the hours have to be accounted for now. And it's just like a trickier thing because it's like not everything has like a set start and end time. Like often it's just like shadowing someone while they're doing stuff. And it's just like hard to organize it all. And like you're saying, to follow up, you've got a lot of things going, a lot of plates you're juggling. Yeah, it's just like a little bit overwhelming. When the focus is smaller, it's easier to 
to train, you know, efficiently, properly, but then when you're spread so thin, it's, it's really tough. But to I mean, figure I, think, out a system. I think it is hard. I think getting creative, you know, you were saying <clears throat> about cross training. I think one of the things I'm really working on these last few months is like stop thinking in such a linear fashion. Like because we've always done it this way is a terrible reason to do something a certain way. And I think that there are, so one of the things we've employed at the restaurant is we've employed, and this is not, we're not reinventing the wheel. People have been doing this for years that your bar back learns how to be a, a bartender, right? But we're employing this sort of like bar back bar server role where the specific purpose is to attend to the guests who are sitting at the bar so that the bartender can focus on making drinks with the secondary purpose being solely learning to make those drinks, right? Yeah, that's how our that's how our B2s function at Scofflaw. Totally. And it's not that it's so unusual. It's just that a lot of the time, you know, Scofflaw, I mean, Scofflaw is such an important bar in the city, but a lot of the time, that's not how it works. A lot of the time, if you're barbacking, you're supposed to keep your eyes on your ice, your glassware, yeah. your stocking, and it's that's it. It's more of it. a slippery slope style. <laughs> <laughs> is that right? Yeah, I mean, more traditional, like, yeah, exactly yeah. what you just said. I mean, Scofflaw also, I mean, what, what goes on at Scofflaw is just like, some of the best bartenders have come out of there and everybody's like learning and growing all the time there and you can see it. And it's just, I mean, the drinks are great. The environment's great. Like, I mean, my partner used to live right around the corner and the, we were at Scofflaw two or three days a week. It was like our bar. Well, thank you. Sure. Um, we are happy to make you martinis anytime. Um, thank you. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Geneva. Danny, what is Geneva? Well, Tim, I'm glad you asked. Geneva is a European spirit with a wide range of flavors and lots of personality. It always uses malt spirit and juniper and other botanicals, so sub would place it somewhere between gin and whiskey. It can be floral and bright like gin or round and malty like whiskey. Whatever your preference, there's a Geneva out there for you. Even me? Even you, Tim. This campaign is financed with aid from the European Union. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground we have a lovely uh part of the podcast that we have dubbed the gratuity round um, fast-paced questions yeah quick cool. off the cuff yeah i might from the hip yeah i might add in a few things uh but we'll let tim kind of lead it off let's do it all right <clears throat> death row meal you got to pick one nachos nachos what's on those nachos uh just your your basic cheese Pickled jalapenos are important. Beans are important. Nacho cheese or shredded cheese? Uh, shredded cheese. Okay. Yeah. Like real deal. Well, yeah, like melted and then broiled and then like crispy on the edges. Oh, that's, that's the most great. confident answer we've got. Yeah, that was awesome. That was great. <laughs> All right. Favorite fast food? Favorite fast food? Um, I mean, I love In-N-Out. Yep, that's great I do one. like In-N-Out. I feel like it's probably a really common that answer. That would be my answer, I think. But I also um, feel like, you know when you're like on the spot and you're like, I feel like there's a, another really obvious answer I'm not thinking. I think there might be another You'll think of it on your yeah. way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's your order? Uh, at In-N-Out? Yeah. Just like double-double yeah. animal style. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I don't like their fries as much. Yeah. That's a pretty I do also complaint. like, I like small Cheval here a lot too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, favorite thing to cook? Could you pick one? I don't think I can pick one. I think it's like, Whatever just gets me excited this but week. But you're pretty well known for fried chicken. Oh, yeah. So, I yeah. mean, biscuits and fried chicken are definitely my our thing. And it was like, that was like my family food. That's like what I made when people came over, like my company food. And then, you know, we, we brought it to the restaurant. I was glad too. But I think we do a really good job with it. Yeah. my I used to work with a gentleman named Eric Henry at The Whistler. And he did like the Thomas Keller fried chicken. 
he was like all about it, but yeah, it was like TK. a very, yeah, it was He's a very, very involved, uh, fried chicken, but he was, he said it was great. It doesn't have to be that involved. <laughs> I mean, that's like, yeah. I love Thomas Kelly. I loved working at that restaurant group, but I yeah. have all of his books. Right. And like, not one of those recipes requires, like we used to make pate there. It took three of us two days. You know what I mean? Oh it's just God. like, just yeah. calm down. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that fried chicken is good. That's great intel. Do you have a favorite thing on your menu right now? You know, I mean, so the fried chicken biscuits definitely like have a place in my heart, but the, the, the crab gravy with crispy Carolina gold rice is like, and you all got, we ordered three that, last okay, time cool. we were there. So that is it's not so only good. my favorite dish on the menu and it's hard to say favorite. <laughs> three, yeah, it was my dessert too. It is, it is the dish I built the new menu around. And so like, I know we're like at the end and not, you know, I want to go off on a tangent, but like when we were deciding whether or not to re like how to reopen, we we're like, if we're going to do it, it has to be worth it. And we have to, it has to be, it's just like such like a passion project. And that crab gravy was like, the the dish that built the whole menu and so i feel very strongly about it it's outstanding thank you um all right favorite restaurant in chicago or in general i guess both dang okay that's okay okay um mito kai is definitely up that up there yeah. here um way way up there virtue um incredible i love monteverde um, but I also feel like, again, like I'm on the spot and there's like stuff I'm not thinking of. No, it's all good. Um, those are great but, answers. But I will say, and again, I think there's like other cities I'm not thinking of. When I lived in LA, when I lived in West Hollywood for the last couple of years, there's this restaurant called Merrick's. I don't think it's there anymore. And it was just like your most basic yeah, Mexican cantina in West Hollywood where it was just like a ton of gays hanging out and they had the best happy hour. And I used to go there by myself all the time for happy hour margaritas. And like, that was probably my favorite restaurant environment to be in just a good as vibe. a patron yeah cool favorite old school restaurant This is all, it's all like so much pressure. I feel like, cause I feel like I'm forgetting things. You know what I mean? It's like you're on chop all uh, over again. I know. <laughs> does, you have does. to review like which ones are left too. Yeah. So there's a restaurant, I, I think this probably counts called Sapori in Lincoln park, um, near my parents' house, um, near my dad and my stepmom's house. And it is, it's just like a, a chef-owned Italian restaurant that's been there at least 20 years, and it's just got, like, real good vibes. The chef's always working. You know, the servers, for the most part, stayed there for a really long time, and I really love that spot. It's Italian? Mm-hmm. I've been looking for a good Italian joint. It's good. Because, it's uh, good. Uh, Sabatino's. Did you ever make it to Sabatino's? I don't think so, it was no. real old school. They, they finally shut down a couple years ago, but I've been chasing that, like, kind of. It was so, like... There's like a 90-year-old guy playing violin table like side. I'm like, like, this is so cool. I never go to the real old school. Even in L.A. too. I've never gone to like the real old school. Like no Gene and Giorgetti's, Frank like and Musso's. Dantana's like I've never been. Yeah, never been to Dantana's. I, gotta, I need to like get that on to my Yeah, well, my let's all list. do one of these meals at a classic Italian place. Great. Absolutely. Uh, go-to cocktail order. I think we already know it. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> a dry gin martini with an olivanda twist. Mm-hmm. And last question, well, Danny may add a few after yeah. this, but something that bars and restaurants do that annoy you? <laughs> menu tours. <laughs> oh, menu tours? Yeah, that's, a, that's, kind of what, that's kind of what Jenna said. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A menu tour. A menu tour is unnecessary. If you're doing it's something different. It's also just different, unreal. Like, why? If you're doing something different, it's fine. One of my, so I have heard so many terrible menu tours where they read you the whole menu and highlight the things I've yeah. already looked at. I already know what I want to order, but. One of my favorites, and I won't say what restaurant, I'll never say what restaurants, you know, but a restaurant <laughs> I really like 
here in Chicago where they said, the, the server said to me, said to us, have you been here before? And I said, some, some of us, but we've all been to a restaurant, you know? <laughs> yeah. I just like, wanted to move on to ordering a cocktail or whatever. No, yeah, when they do the menu tour, you're like, cool, I'll start with a dessert and then I'll work my way <laughs> Yeah, thank God you explained yeah. it to me. Yeah. Oh my God, you don't start with dessert? <laughs> what the heck have I been doing all these years? What this, a moron I am. The server goes, great. We're just like a, like a really traditional Italian restaurant. I was like, great, that's the whole menu tour. And she's like, so let me just tell you about the, how the menu works. And <laughs> And then like 10 minutes later, I was just telling us page? about how it works. And I was yeah. like, I know how it works. I'm almost 40 years old. Yeah. I have been doing this for yeah, so... Forget, forget being in the in the industry. I've been eating right, at, restaurants been eating at restaurants my entire life. For 35 Wait, years. Wait, I just say what I want from oh, the God, thing that's in front of me tour. and it comes? The menu tour. I, you know, I blame the transition into like the no like appetizer entree, like having like more shared plates and all that, which I totally subscribe to. So we have a very short menu tour. Yeah. And it's like, we suggest sharing things, but if you don't want to, that's okay. That's like the <laughs> that's whole thing. a good thing. tour, yeah. Yeah. It's perfect. Um, yeah, I, I hate to go the, uh, you know, the, the sensational route, but yeah, like what are the, the like crazy, you know, restaurant stories, you know, whether it was times that there was danger, oh someone God. getting hurt. I mean, you cut yourself. A obviously. knife fight in the kitchen. Yeah, kitchen I've knife I've seen fights. some wild stuff. And, you know, like the things that come to mind are like, I'm almost like, should I put this in a podcast? <laughs> um, one time. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this. And I don't think anyone can. I don't think I can get in trouble after the fact. But if I do, I'm going to blame you both. Statue of limitations. <laughs> uh, yeah. One time we had, wasn't, we didn't even have our patio doors open. Somebody opened the door to the restaurant and a rat ran in from outside. Yeah. Just full on, a full-sized rat just was wandering down the street, saw an opportunity and took it, came inside the restaurant, and someone came to get me in the kitchen, and we didn't really know what to do. It had it had made a beeline for, like, this sofa out in the corner, and we really didn't want any of the guests to see, but the, ta- the guests at table one, the closest to the front door, had seen, and this family of three people, an adult, like, a, two people and their adult child, got up and, like, took it upon themselves to help us. Like raid the, the restaurant up yeah. the rat and so somebody got a broom was trying to sweep under the sofa but it wasn't really working and then we decided it was in the sofa so me and the father from the table just these guests who had been enjoying dinner a minute ago picked the sofa up and took it outside and then the rat ran out and then the man just started kicking it i was like oh no don't okay stop yeah he's like he already had that been was... helpful so you're like uh this is just awkward now. yeah it was really it was he was just kind of kicked it half to death and then it ran away when i came back in the morning it was dead on the doorstep Ooh. Oh, okay. and it came back <laughs> just to die there yeah. um <laughs> oh my God. another story that comes to mind that's not funny at all but it's one of those things that i think a lot of people don't realize like how how intense like so We've got the cocktail lounge in the basement. And the number of times I will go down there with a strange man I've never met before, just me and him. And I'm just like, all of a sudden I'll find myself in the backest of back rooms. I'm like, I hope you're all right. Yeah. People I've interviewed, some guy who showed up the other day was like, I'm here to clean the beer lines who I've never seen before and didn't call. I was like, sure, that sounds great. Our beer lines probably need to be cleaned. Let's yeah. go. And then I was like, we're just like in the basement. Like, I don't even have a cell phone reception. But we were, the first year we were open... I was holding open interviews for dishwashers and on a day we were closed. So somebody's doing inventory. I'm holding interviews. We've got a handful, like maybe four or five people there. We weren't, we weren't open. Yeah. And this guy came in, he had some really intense vibes and he kind of back, like we were with the group. So it wasn't like I was down in the basement with him or anything, but I was up against the bar and he was getting closer and closer to me. And there was a bar stool next to me and I couldn't really move. And oh. like, I was like in my face explaining why he didn't want to fill out the application. He didn't want to interview. I should just hire him. Hmm. And basically the explanation was I have children. 
And I was like, I hear you. I hear you. And finally I was like, hey man, I just like, do you mind just backing up a little bit? Like you're kind of like in my personal space. And he got like really angry. Oof. And he, he like, he was like, oh, it's like that. And he threw the application up in the air and went to walk out. And there was a whole row of bottles of spirits because our bar manager at the time was doing inventory. And she was bent down in the cooler counting bottles. And he took his arms and he smashed every one of the bottles. And they all fell on her, this person who was working with us. All these bottles, like, I don't even fell on her. Smashed, like, flew at her. Like, there was broken glass in her hair. And the guy, like, started to walk out and then started screaming, like, go ahead and call the police. And, like... None of us knew what to do. Like, he was between me and her. Mm. I couldn't get to her. I was, like, in full panic mode. Oh, my God. You know, we took her to the hospital. You know, she she was okay. And obviously, she's okay. Um, and the guy never came back. We, we did call the police. Um, and it was, like, really scary. Yeah, it's like, it's you put yourself scary. in these vulnerable positions. Mm-hmm. And we all feel invulnerable. We're all like, oh, it's my restaurant. I'll come in at 5 in the morning. I'll stay here until 2 in the morning. I'll do whatever. But yeah. it can be really dangerous. And, you know, we invite people into our space and then have... Sometimes really strange interactions. Yeah, super with weird interactions. Yeah, that is a pretty common thread I feel in our industry. Like you just never know. Yeah, recently with us, there's been a person who has been acting a certain way, saying that she, you know, saying they need an ambulance. We've called an ambulance. Then this, this ambulance has been like, this person does this all the sure. time. Please don't call us. Yeah, but then that, that's like, too much onus to put on you. If somebody yeah, says they just, need an ambulance, you like, call an ambulance. It's super awkward. You catch the bill for the ambulance? No, we don't. No, they're they like, they're sympathetic. They're like, I know you're trying to do the right thing, but yeah. this, per, this particular person does this all the time. It's not an ambulance that they need. They need like mental health help. Right. And we can't provide a that. Different podcast. Yeah, different podcast yeah. for sure. Oh, but, we've um, had people, we've had dishwashers OD and whoa. Had to call 911. We've had, I mean, one dishwasher only worked there for like two days and kept demanding money from me. He showed up in the middle of a busy brunch service and asked me for $20 for insoles for his shoes. And I just gave it to him because I was like, well, I don't know. I'm really busy. You can whatever. So he wound up leaving in the middle of service and uh, not coming back. And then at the end of the night, he came back. And we were all sitting at the bar. Normally, I don't sit at my own bar, but we were at somebody's last night. So we're all sitting at the bar. And he came back for like a confrontation. And he like beckoned me over to him by the door. And he basically told me he needed some money right now to get to like a shelter. And if I didn't give it to him, I was basically like signing his death warrant and, you know, all this stuff. And I was like, hey, man, I just can't give you, I just can't give you money right now. Like, that's not how this is going to go. And a couple, a couple of guests, like the sweetest, nicest, like kindest people who just like had just had dinner at the bar and they sort of turned around to watch it. And he was like, oh, are you going to fight me too? And this guy, Josh, in his pea coat was like, no, no, I'm not going to. No, not me. You know? <laughs> like this poor guy was I'm like, not I'm not. trying to fight. Yeah. yeah. So then like my two sous chefs, like two really big guys came down and stood behind me and eventually like he left or whatever. But, you know, like that kind of stuff happens all the time. Like honestly, all the time. You just yeah. kind of have to stand your ground and like trust your judgment and do the best you can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, I feel like we've covered a lot. Thank you. This is a great, great interview. This is awesome. This was awesome to be involved. Yeah, we're glad we got you on here, and thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you both. Thank you. What a pleasure. I'm excited about this party can. (laughs) Yeah, booyah. (laughs) This concludes our conversation with Zoe Shore of Split Rail and Dorothy Downstairs. Thanks for joining us for episode four. And we are out of here.
Gotta stay.